Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that our times are in thy hands and thou doest all things well. We thank thee that all kinds of weather in our lives come from thee. And thou dost send the storm and the rain, the sun and the spring, with our welfare in thee and mine. Give us grace, our Father, to receive all things from thy hands, and in all things to thank thee, and to acknowledge that indeed thou art a gracious God. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our subject today is the doctrine of grace, and our scripture, Romans 3, 19 through 31. The doctrine of grace, Romans 3, 19 through 31. Now we know that what things to ever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we established the law. Throughout his epistles, the Apostle Paul makes one point clear over and over again. By grace are ye saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The Pauline message, therefore, emphatically is that salvation is the sovereign act of God. From start to finish, the act of God. And that man is passive in salvation. This was not a new doctrine with Paul. It is taught from one end of scripture to the other. It is taught by Moses. It is taught by the prophets. 
once it is taught by our Lord. The whole of the scriptures make clear that salvation is through the grace of God, through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament it was through the sacrificial system which set forth the work of Christ and in the New Testament through his finished work. This too was the great doctrine which St. Augustine defended. Indeed, when we study the history of the councils and creeds, the one great figure that looms above and over all others is St. Augustine. The mark of St. Augustine's thinking is apparent very definitely at the great councils of Ephesus and of Chalcedon. It is very definitely apparent also in the Athanasian Creed. It was very powerful in the Council of Toledo, which came later. A good deal of his career, Augustine devoted to fighting Pelagianism, P-E-L-A-G-I-A-N-I-S-M named after Pelagius, P-E-L-A-G-I-U-S. Of Pelagius we know very little. He appeared suddenly in Rome about the year 400, supposedly a monk from Britain. His name may have been Morgan. More than that, we do not know. Where he was born and when he died, we cannot say. He was an able speaker. He exercised a powerful influence in Rome and elsewhere. And for a time, he threatened to capture the church. The persuasiveness of the man the common sense approach ostensibly of his arguments were very convincing to many. But the doctrines of Pelagius were pure humanism, in particular with regard to the doctrine of man. Pelagius said, I say that man is able to be without sin, and that he is able to keep the commandments of God. This statement sets forth the heart of Pelagius' thinking. Man is able to be perfect. Man is able to save himself, to be his own savior. So that for Pelagius, God in effect was utterly unnecessary. Pelagius, as he opposed the Augustinian teaching, emphasized three points in particular. First, all men might be sinless and perfect if they choose. Second, each man is born without impediment of original sin or any kind of sinful predisposition or entailment or moral weakness. That is, without any original sin. Third, man does not need God to overcome sin and to advance 
to become personally or socially perfect, to make of himself or the world around him a perfection. Thus Pelagius in effect said we do not need God. Man can do all things himself, perfect himself and the world around him. And it is offensive to man to talk in terms of original sin and total depravity, predestination and all these things which St. Augustine and all of Scripture declare. In opposition to Pelagius, St. Augustine emphasized four points in particular. First, all men are sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All men of themselves apart from Christ are sinners. Second, Augustine emphasized with all of Scripture the doctrine of original sin, that all of us as children of Adam share in Adam's sin, in Adam's depravity. We are born to sin and death. There is no man born who can escape sin and who can escape death. This is our destiny until we are redeemed by Jesus Christ. Third, Augustine declared man cannot save himself. Salvation is the act of God by his prevenient grace. The meaning of prevenient grace we shall come to shortly. And fourth, in terms of these things, St. Augustine emphasized also the biblical doctrine of predestination that God is the absolute Lord of all things, ordains and governs all things that come to pass, so that all things have their origin in the eternal decree of God. Pelagianism, for a time, threatened to destroy the church. It was St. Augustine, who, standing in terms of the scriptures, prevented the destruction of Christianity by Pelagianism. A century after Augustine, the Council of or or Orange in southern Gaul or southern France met in 529 to condemn Pelagianism. Now the Council of Orange was dominated by men of an Augustinian faith. It was a regional council, not a general or ecumenical council of the church. Twenty-five canons were issued condemning Pelagianism. The heart of these twenty-five canons can be summed up in three heads. First, Adam's sin affected his whole being, body and soul, so that no part of Adam was exempt from his sin and from his fall. The taint of sin entered into Adam's mind as well as his will, so that his whole being was corrupted 
by his rebellion against God, his desire to be his own God. Second, Adam's sin infected all humanity, his entire posterity. We have therefore a corrupted inheritance. We are born to sin and to die. No man can escape this. No child needs to be taught to sin. It is their nature. They think first of themselves. Their whole life moves around the satisfaction of their own wants and to learn the works of righteousness is something that they have to be drilled and trained and forced into until they become converted. Third, the Council of Origin, or Orange declared grace is prevenient. Prevenient means going before. That is, grace goes before our act of faith. It is grace that brings us to seek God. It is the grace of God within us that leads us to ask the right questions and to accept the right answers, to have faith and to pray. So that faith is not our act but God's grace within us. So that by grace we are saved. It is not of ourselves, as St. Paul said, but it is the gift of God in us. So far, so good. In declaring these points, the Council of Orange was faithfully biblical and Augustinian. But having issued its canons, the Council of Orange then passed three resolutions which in effect said now you Pelagians we are sorry that we were rough on you but we're not going to kick you out of the church entirely so that we will make room for man in the doctrine of salvation and we will say that we are not completely in agreement with Augustine by condemning predestination so that the Council of Orange conceded to Pelagianism and weakened its own stand. Strict Augustinianism, however, continued through the centuries. It had a number of great figures. For example, the Venerable Bede, Alcuin, who was so influential with Charlemagne, the great Isidore of Seville, and of course, much later, Luther and Calvin. And Augustinianism, of course, was embodied in all the great confessions and creedal standards of the Reformation, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Formula of Concord, the 39 Articles, and the Westminster Confession. Pelagianism, however, has by and large triumphed in all branches of the church so that the Eastern churches, the Roman Catholic Church and Protestantism today are by and large Pelagian churches. What does Pelagianism 
involved when it is applied to the various spheres of life. Its implications are very far-reaching. Let us analyze, first of all, Pelagian political theory. For the Pelagians, first of all, the state is not restricted as it is in Scripture and in Augustinianism to the role of the ministry of justice. Instead, the state, because there is a confidence in the plenary powers of man, and in the plenary ability of man is given plenary ability also. Now the word plenary is very significant. It means total or full, complete. We speak of the plenary inspiration of Scripture, meaning that Scripture is entirely, fully, thoroughly in its every aspect, in its every word, inspired. Thus, when Pelagianism insisted on the plenary ability of man, it said that man in every fiber of his being was able to save himself, able to create a powerful, true, and perfect world order. Now, when you have a Pelagian view of man, and all men in themselves have plenary ability, and you add this up in the collective in the form of a state, you have therefore a doctrine of state with plenary ability. If man by himself can create perfection in his life, how much more so the democratic state or the total state with all this plenary ability added up in it. As a result, the state and the Pelagian state becomes man's mediator and savior. Man through the state becomes his own god. Second, the Pelagian state offers cradle-to-grave security. The Pelagian state, because it believes in its plenary ability, is confident that it can abolish hunger, sickness, poverty, crime, all problems. There is nothing that the plenary Pelagian state does not face with confidence. And so its answer to every problem is itself. Simply turn the problem over to us, the Pelagian state declares. And we are able. All things are possible with us. And with us there is nothing impossible. We can save humanity and create a paradise on earth. Third, the Pelagian state, because it believes in its plenary ability, asks therefore plenary power to do that which it has the capacity to do. As a result, the Pelagian doctrine leads inevitably to the totalitarian state.
for because Pelagianism has no doctrine of sin. It has no doctrine of checks and balances, no breaks on the power of the state. And fifth, whenever and wherever in history there is a decline of the doctrine of sovereign grace, you have a rise of the totalitarian sovereign state. Either God is man's savior and sovereign, and sovereign grace predestinates man and saves him. It is prevenient. Or else the sovereign predestining, predestinating state becomes man's savior and claims total power, the power of God over man. But Pelagianism also has far-reaching implications in the church. The Pelagian church, first of all, makes itself man's mediator rather than Christ. And second, because the Pelagian church believes in its plenary ability, it transfers the doctrine of infallibility from Scripture to the Church so that some aspect of the Church becomes infallible and the infallibility is transferred to the Pope or to the Church Councils or the Church Synods or General Assemblies or Presbyteries, whatever the case may be. The infallibility is withdrawn from God and His Word and given to the church or an aspect of the church. Third, this means that the church has become the savior rather than Christ. And fourth, because Pelagianism is humanism, the Pelagian church seeks power not through God but through humanistic ways, through numerical strength. Since it does not recognize the power of God, the Pelagian church says, we will be strong by adding numbers upon numbers, so let us lower the doctrinal standards, let us lower the membership standards, let us unite church with church and bring them all together and create a worldwide church which is a tremendous power block in every part of the world. And fifth, as a logical consequence of this, the Pelagian church seeks power by alliance with the state in order to create what they both dream of, paradise on earth without God. The Pelagian Church is essentially totalitarian. It has no distrust of human power since its faith and hope is in human power. But Pelagianism also in education is a deadly thing in our midst. Pelagian education, first of all, is a program of salvation and it is messianic in character. It is going to save man by means of facts. Second, because Pelagian education holds that knowledge is power, 
It makes the educator the key to social regeneration. Man has a godlike power to recreate the world, and the educator and education is the tool by which means by means of which man shall do this. And for the Pelagian school makes an alliance with the Pelagian church and the Pelagian state to create this new world order. But Pelagianism also has implications in every other area. To cite but a few, the Pelagian artist believes in the regenerating power of the aesthetic experience. The Pelagian woman believes in the power of women to save the world, and you have feminism. The Pelagian economist believes that certain economic devices are going to be the salvation of man and abolish poverty and every problem forever. Pelagianism simply believes in any and every area in man's plenary or total ability. And plenary ability calls for plenary power, plenary planning, plenary controls, and its consequence is plenary tyrants and tyranny. This is Pelagianism, and we see it on all sides today. The doctrine of sovereign grace alone provides a bulwark against tyrants and tyranny and for liberty. It declares, by grace are ye saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The doctrine of sovereign grace demands a sovereign restraint on man's potentialities and powers. It declares that to God alone belongs dominion. It declares that man must choose. Either God predestines all things or the state predestines all things. And that the triumph of Pelagianism is always the enslavement of man. The Council of Orange came very close. But truth is precise and exact. If I say 10 plus 10 equals 21, I am close to the right answer, but I am still completely wrong. And when we are dealing with doctrine, our answer may be close to the right answer, but if it is not the answer, it is still totally wrong. And the Council of Orange, therefore, in compromising the truth, gave ground to falsity. But the doctrine of grace would not doubt. And whenever it triumphed in Western history, it created liberty. Whenever it has gone under, tyranny has prevailed. The doctrine of grace, therefore, is basic to the future. And no one can understand any area of liberty unless they go back 
to the biblical and to the Augustinian doctrines. A few years ago I heard Sister Margaret Patricia McCarran declare that if anyone wanted to understand American liberty, they had better read Augustine, and rightly so. The doctrine of liberty is a product of sovereign grace. Let us pray. <clears throat> Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that thou art sovereign. And by thy sovereign grace thou hast called us and set us apart as a people unto thee established in liberty. Make us strong, our Father, in this faith. And grant, our Father, that in our day this faith prevail. That Pelagianism be shattered and destroyed. And that thy word again govern and prevail in church, state, school, and every aspect of life. Use us this purpose, we beseech thee, in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now? Yes. Uh, Ambassador Goldberg, in the title of uh, you and the Ambassador the U.N., is this the same word that is used there, that he is uh, with plenary power or whatever it is, this, uh, So that if you give plenary power to any man, what you are in effect saying is, I will be bound by what you do for me and in my name. represented the 
emperor and the one world order so that one way of worshipping the power and might and majesty of Rome was to do obeisance to the sun. And Pope Gregory the Great uh, condemned so many of the people in his day who came to church because before they walked into the church they bowed to the sun. They were going to play safe with uh, both as it were. And this has crept in, unfortunately, so that we feel that we must uh, observe some of these things. Of course, now it's just a harmless relic, but really there is no significance to it. If the church faces north and if it, or if it faces south or west or east, it's all the same as long as the word of God is faithfully preached. But I don't think a church facing east is going to preserve you if you have a foul ball in the pulpit. Yes. Is Arminianism in any way related to Pelagianism? Yes, Arminianism is a form of Pelagianism. Very definitely. denied the Trinitarianism they denied the meaning of the prophecies 
They denied, for example, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah that it referred to the Messiah who was to come and then gave it a radical new interpretation in terms of Phariseeism and this was, in essence, humanism. So very rapidly, Judaism, as we know it, developed humanism. And What was that, about 79 or somewhere in there? Uh, very rapidly after 70 A.D. it developed. Now, Phariseeism was a good example of this before, but it completely obliterated everything else and dominated Judaism and became Judaism. And the Talmud, of course, as I said, is a great humanistic document. And... It's no wonder that humanists like Earl Warren regard it very highly because it is one of the landmarks of humanism. Yes? I've just finished reading several issues of Don Bell reports from the British Israel. Mm -hmm. I was amazed. Is this man as good as he sounds? Yes, on British Israel he is very accurate. Is he a scholar? Yes, he's a very able man. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes. Uh, is it true, uh, within reason, that the Jews then were originally the equivalent of nowadays Christians? Yes. Judaism in the Old Testament, or it isn't Judaism then. Judaism is the term for what you have now, humanism. But the Hebraic faith was really no different than ours. To be saved, you had to believe in the atoning work of the sacrificial one of God, the one who was to come and to give his life as a ransom for many. You went to the temple or tabernacle with your offering, and you took that lamb or whatever the offering was, and you laid it upon the altar, and you confessed your sin. And you said, in brief, this, that you deserve to die because you were a sinner. But you accepted the sacrifice God had provided for you, the substitute. And by his death, you gained not only forgiveness of sins, but life, new life. And so the animal, the lamb, was slain upon the altar, and you went away forgiven. Now this, of course, is simply the essence of what the New Testament sets forth. So that the doctrine of salvation is one in the Old and the New Testaments. It is simply fulfilled and brought out in its fullness in the New. Do the Jews now use the Old Testament as part of their religion? They nominally use the Old Testament, but they use it as reinterpreted because they made it clear long before this that the interpretation is more basic than the text. For example, they no longer recognize that salvation is by God. It is by your own efforts. This is pure Pelagianism. The sacrificial system has no meaning. All you go to the synagogue for is a little inspiration and moral uh, self-help teaching. 
rest is a, a new book out that I've heard discussed quite a bit lately, and uh, several of the commentators have used it as ammunition against Christians. And it's called The Passover Plot. And I wondered if you've read it and if you would have Yes, the book The Passover Plot is really not worth reading. Schoenfeld, who wrote it, is a scholar in England who has certain abilities linguistically, but the book is sheer nonsense. Uh, his thesis, of course, is that uh, Jesus was not uh, crucified, did not die. The whole thing was a plot. Uh, to pretend that he was dead and resurrected and so on. There isn't anything behind it except his imagination. But this is the kind of thing that has been said before. This is not new. It's simply wishful thinking. Sure, getting a big play. Of I, I knew, of course, that it was just locked up. Mm -hmm. Historically, uh, I mean, he claims that he gave his all of his, uh, uh, you know, assumptions on history. Well, <laughs> no. You can document anything. For example, you can uh, document something this way. Supposing you write that uh, President Johnson is really not a man, he's a woman in disguise. And then I quote you and say three or four other people who print the same bit of nonsense, and then I say, I have documented this with four or five authorities. This proves that I have a case. Well, all he has to document what he has had to say is what a lot of uh, people of similar character said, just sheer nonsense utterly meaningless. But of course, this is the kind of thing we're getting today, and what it represents is a moral and spiritual revolution. A new book has been published, for example, which I think is a very good indication of what is in the offing. Uh, it is a book about hell's angels, and the person apologizes for them thoroughly. He says they're slandered and misunderstood. Of course, they do go in for mass rapes and uh, a lot of brutality and so on and so forth. And he tells us far more than we'd ever heard about the Hells Angels. But we are misunderstanding them. And we are slandering them. And he's, he gives us what supposedly is a sympathetic and understanding view. Well, all it adds up to is that he has no moral standards and he is asking us to have none. Uh, for example, there was a radio interview the other day during an opera intermission with a very prominent uh, singer who sings the role of Iago in Otello. And of course, Iago is a thoroughly depraved and vicious character. But when he was asked about how he played the role of Iago, he said, oh no, he didn't depict him as an evil man. Uh, he was a man just like the rest of us, and you had to portray everyone sympathetically, because he was what he was. And so what he needed was, in essence, 
understanding. Now, uh, when you have this kind of moral uh, rot abroad, you are going to unleash against the source of anything that will indict this moral rot all the hatred, all the destructive force you can. And so this book on the Passover plot is just one of many books that are going to come out that will do nothing but try to eliminate any possibility of Christ being taken seriously. And of course we've been having these for some time. Albert Schweitzer had a psychiatric study of Jesus which certainly didn't do him any justice and uh, there have been a whole series of them and it's just going to be stepped up now. Well, I just thought from what I heard about it that it was one of the most blatant examples of the Antichrist, you know, that I ever heard of. Yes. Some months ago, you recommended a book of poems by a young author. I don't recall. Do you recall any of the poems? Oh, yes. Uh, David Gray, The Man Who Died Young. Yes. The poems, uh, the sonnets in particular of David Gray. Any other questions? Yes. I was talking to a young minister who uh, claims that he's a uh, neo-orthodox and we were talking about the Bible and he would admit to me that he uh, believed in the Bible but uh, he spoke of the word of God and then he said, well, uh, Christ. No, Jesus. He didn't say Jesus. He said Christ in the word. But he didn't go on to explain. Now, uh, after having talked to him for a while, I realized that he was using double talk. Yes. Uh, and what did he mean by that? Yes. Now, Logos in the Greek is translated as word in English. And uh, St. John begins, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. Now the word in that sense and the word of God in the sense of scripture are two different things. So that we have the inscriptured word of God here in the Bible. When they say, I believe in the word of God, Jesus Christ or Christ, the answer to them is, how can you believe in a word you do not know if this word is not trustworthy? Because, of course, if the written word is not trustworthy, then the living word, Christ, is exactly what they want to make of him. And having abolished this word, then their Christ is exactly the one they want him to be. He is in favor of marches to Selma. He is in favor now of boycotting the Eastman Kodak Company. He is, of course, marvelously represented today in the figure of Saul Alinsky, who gets more money out of the churches than any other single man and who is going to establish his headquarters in California, yeah. a school of revolution probably in San Francisco supported by the California churches. 
this is what they will make of the word of God if they deny the inscriptured word. Yes. Uh, Rush, in my job, I heard that uh, Paul Lindsay is not only uh, instrumental in keeping revolutionaries in his TV churches and the young people in churches, but he is also working with and through the coffee program. He is actually poverty program workers. Exactly. He is one of the most powerful men in the poverty program, and his purpose is to organize everyone of the poor for social revolution and he has made it clear that it is his purpose to organize the have-nots to take it from the haves so that the poverty program is planned revolution join with the minority group revolution yes to coordinate uh, with the minority group and the poverty and the union and the yes. churches yes. get them all tied up we've really got revolution yes 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 I read something you remember a few weeks ago on the uh, myth of the population explosion since then the statistics that have been revealed indicate that our birth rate uh, in 66 was the lowest since 36 and is dropping rapidly every year all over the world. And we are likely in a very short time, in a very few years, to have empty schoolrooms up and down the state of California because we have been overbuilding steadily and are still overbuilding. And as a result, we are going to face a vast surplus of schoolroom space. Now, uh, such a statement has been made by a member of the committee on uh, school construction in the state of California. But there's no heading off the drive to build because it's a way of spending our money. I ran across a couple of things that I thought were rather interesting. This is from the February 20 U.S. News and World Report. February 20, 1967, page 17. And it discusses the Washington uh, National Crime Commission studies. Are police reaching a breaking point? And it goes on to say, uh, the policemen are harassed almost to the breaking point regularly by large, angry crowds that suddenly gather at the scenes of arrests and shout brutality and curses almost before the police get out of the car. And as a result, their life is a very difficult one, tremendously uh, subjected to pressure, to harassment, and so on. But this is what the Crime Commission has to say. All five observers contacted said they found surprisingly widespread bigotry. Quote, nearly every white policeman revealed strong prejudices against Negroes in private conversations, one of the observers said, unquote. Now, isn't this amazing? These poor policemen are 
uh, kicked, they have bottles thrown at them, they are sworn at, they are abused, they find nothing but depravity day after day. And the Crime Commission of Washington, D.C., the National Crime Commission, is shocked that they don't regard the Negroes more highly. This, this is insanity. Doesn't say just someone appointed apparently by Congress or uh, commissioners of Washington D.C. or the president. Then this, in an indication of what we may be facing in more than one place across country, from the Wall Street Journal, Wednesday, March 1st, 1967, page 22. Now, just read a couple of uh, items from it and the headlines. Ohio could issue bonds without calling a vote if proposal is adopted. An Ohio capital financing plan that would erase the need for public approval on bond issues is nearing passage in the General Assembly, but the proposed constitutional amendment may be headed for trouble at the special election tentatively for May. Democratic leaders are putting together plans to fight the Republican-backed constitutional proposal sponsored by Governor Rhodes. Now, what kind of a country will it be when bonds can be issued without any vote? And of course, we have created already in this state an agency that can do the same. The water authority that is to bring water south, which will be a more powerful government than the one in Sacramento. Yes? Yes? It would be a good check. Buy no bonds. A very good one, yes.